All right, well, let's begin with a word of prayer and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word this morning. Father, we thank you that you've spoken so clearly, and this morning we want to turn our attention to your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wonders in your law, and we pray that you would establish your word to your servants this morning as the very thing that would cause us to revere you. Uh, We want to grow in our fear of you, Lord. We we long to um, worship you in our lives, in our hearts and minds, in all of our relationships, and all of our responsibilities, and we need to know you in your word. We need to understand ourselves rightly, and we need to understand your salvation, your church, and the privilege we have to serve, and what it would look like to be glorifying to you and edifying to our, to our brothers and sisters. And Lord, for all of this, for everything we can possibly set our hand and mind and heart to in the Christian life, in life at all, it requires us to know you and to know your mind. And so to understand your word and to interpret your word correctly is a foundation for everything pertaining to life and godliness. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would equip us, stir up our hearts this morning with greater confidence in your ability to speak. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, last three weeks, we've been looking at how God speaks. Satan and unbelievers alike have critiqued and attacked God's ability to speak ever since God began speaking to man. And we've looked at some of those attacks, and we've begun to rebuild, if you will, rebuild from the foundation. Um, The scripture has a lot to say about interpretation. And so the big word for interpretation is hermeneutics, and we're asking the question, well, can we really learn how to interpret what God says from what he says? And the answer, of course, is yes, we can. God has spoken clearly, and we learn a lot by looking at what the scriptures presuppose about these things, namely language, meaning, and interpretation. So that's where we're at. We're uh, building the foundation for how we can even think about language and meaning and what it would mean to actually interpret somebody correctly. Last week, we began with the first presupposition, which is, what does the Bible presuppose about language? And if you remember, we talked about the fact that language is a God-given ability that enables us to understand. We can communicate. We have interpersonal communication simply because we are created in God's image. And God has been speaking interpersonally for eternity past. That's an ability he has, and he always has had, and always will have. And he created man in his image explicitly because he gave man dominion over his creation, which is a reflection of God's image. And he gave man a unique gender relationship. Male and female, he created them explicitly as a result of creating them in his image. And so it's just fascinating to think about those responsibilities of man, dominion and relationship, and the essential role of language. And here we are, 
I'm speaking to you using human language that it's an ability that God gave me and you're listening using the God-given ability that he gave you and, and I hope that there's meaning being transferred and conveyed as we, as we have this exercise of opening up God's word and talking about what God said to us as mankind. And um, again, we looked at several examples of unbelievers trying to come up with an answer for this language ability. Where did we get it? And all of those answers are just embarrassing, aren't they? You open up scripture and here's God saying, oh, by the way, yeah, I created you. And I've always had the speech ability. And I gave it to you. And that's why it makes sense. That's something that the Bible presupposes from the very first word. It just starts talking to us. And it expects that we understand. And then, of course, it explains it later. The second presupposition that we began, this is where we kind of left off last week, is the, uh, if I can get my notes where I should be. Probably already got it up there. Hmm. This is what happens when you dive into old notes here. There we go. Okay, so last week we left off. And our second presupposition, and that simply is that meaning is singular and it's determined by the author's intention. Meaning is singular and it's determined by the author's intention. When, when God says something, he has the right to determine what it means. And he only meant one thing. And when you speak to your spouse, you have the right to determine what you mean. And you only mean one thing. I love you and you look beautiful this morning doesn't mean three things. It means one thing. It could be misinterpreted. It could be misunderstood. You can presume on your spouse who's speaking it, but it only means one thing, and it means what you determined it to mean. And the scriptures presuppose that. And we looked at that in Jeremiah. Uh, last week, uh, I think on slide 14 or so, you should have the, the bullet point where we left off. Jeremiah, we looked at Jeremiah 1, Jeremiah 19, Jeremiah 23. There we go. And we looked at how God determined the meaning that he intended, and he holds his people accountable to that meaning. In the last passage we looked at there, Jeremiah 23, 28, subjectivism does not mix with divine revelation. Man does not have the ability to say, well, I had this impression of God's speech, so therefore that's what God meant to say because I said so. And God says, no, no. What does straw have to do with the kernel, the real meaning of what I said is what I intended. You, you can get it right or wrong, but it doesn't mean what you say it means just because you said so. Man does not have the authority to turn or change or alter God's meaning. The last example I want to look at, I want you to open up your Bibles and look at Jeremiah 31. This one's very, very important. Jeremiah 31. God is speaking to the people of Israel, and he's actually... This is a fascinating text, because in this text, God is exposing a misinterpretation. So the nation of Israel has taken the words of God, namely the Torah, because that's their scripture. When, when Jeremiah is ministering to the nation of Israel, their Bible is the Torah, and they have some uh, written psalms and writings, so they would have some of the some of psalms and proverbs already written down, no doubt, from previous generations, because David would have been about two to three hundred years earlier, but they're operating off of the Torah as their scriptures. And Jeremiah 
starts to address the people about a misinterpretation from the Torah. The Torah is just the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so they have a conclusion about what God meant in the Torah, and it's incorrect. Look at Jeremiah. Let's start in verse 29. Jeremiah 31, verse 29. In those days, they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Now, that might not sound all that impressive to you. But when you understand what Jeremiah is doing here, this is a profound passage on the Bible's presupposition about singular meaning and the author's ability to determine meaning. Notice in verse 29, Jeremiah is actually quoting a proverb. This would be a very common phrase. This would be a very common expression. This would be what the Israelites would recite to themselves. It's just an axiom. It's a wise saying. Israelites would have said, the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. What does that mean? They sit there and they say, you know the reason why we're having miserable, a miserable circumstance? You know why our lives are not going the way they ought to go? It's our father's fault. They're the ones that ate the sour grapes, but we're the ones puckering up. You know, you eat something really bitter, and it's like, and it's like, that's our life. Our fathers ate the sour grapes. We're experiencing the bitterness of their actions. Why do they say that? Because didn't God say in the Torah, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation? And so what they mean is they, they take that statement from God in the Torah, they create an axiom that means we know why our lives are miserable. It's our parents' fault. And it's a misinterpretation of what God said in the Torah, which is just in a warning about the implications of sin, namely, don't sin because whatever you practice will be passed on to your sons and your grandsons and your great-grandsons. There are generational effects to sin. And they took that gracious warning as a, a, a truism that they twisted into an excuse that we're not really suffering for our own sins. Our forefathers are to blame. And it became a justification. It excused their own culpability for their own sin. It's a misinterpretation. It is a lie. It is false, patently false. And so Jeremiah comes along and says, okay, there's your axiom. Verse 29, he kind of like pulls it off of the bumper stickers that you would have seen in the chariots if you rode around Jerusalem, you know? It's like this bumper sticker version of Judaism. Yeah, this is what the Bible meant. It has nothing to do with what God meant. He quotes that. And so then he says in verse 30, but everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. What that verse means is he's correcting the error of their interpretation. And he's saying, listen, Jews, each one of you is responsible for your own sin. If you do something wrong before the Lord, you're responsible for your sin. The consequences of your sin 
are yours. This is not inconsistent with what he said in the Torah. That passage that was misinterpreted from Exodus and Deuteronomy was just simply misinterpreted. There, are, there is a gracious warning about generational implications of sin. But nevertheless, each individual is culpable for his own sin. That's what the Torah says. That's what Jeremiah says. It's completely consistent. He's exposing the fact that the Israelites took God's word, came up with their own meaning, took, and asserted that meaning over the top of what God said and says, that's what it means. And Jeremiah says, no, it doesn't. It never has and it never will. That's not what God meant. It meant one thing, and God has the right to determine that meaning. On this passage, I have a quote for you from Abner Chow. I found this really helpful. If on the next slide you want to go there. He says this. He says, finally, this passage does not indicate that God revises the meaning of past revelation. Rather, the meaning of the passages are upheld and clarified to silence misinterpretation. That's important. The prophets were hermeneutically accurate with past revelation. They did not twist the scriptures, nor did God move them to do so. Jeremiah is interpreting Torah correctly. The Israelites were interpreting it incorrectly. And every time the prophets interpret the Torah and the apostles interpret the Old Testament, they interpret it accurately every single time. But I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's for part five through eight. And starting next week, we'll get into that. But I'm getting ahead of myself. For now, it's just important to recognize the scriptures just regularly, constantly, and every time presuppose that meaning is singular. It means one thing. And the author or speaker has the right to determine that meaning. So here's the hermeneutical principle on your next slide. The meaning of the scripture, of the scripture's human language, it's important, the meaning of the scripture's human language is precisely what God intended to say and, in fact, meant by what he said. He meant one thing. He's not meaning one thing. He didn't mean one thing in the past and now is meaning something different and will mean something different even farther in the future. It, what it meant when he said it is what it always means. Secondly, then, the question for us, the hermeneutical question is, we shouldn't ask, what does this mean to me? <laughs> but what did it mean before I existed? If meaning is singular and God has the right to determine the meaning, it doesn't really matter what it means to me. It means what did it mean and has it always meant to God? What did it mean before I even existed? That's a better question than what does it mean to me. Let's just not even insert ourselves there yet. Of course, we all acknowledge that when it comes to application, when we get the meaning right, it's critical. If we're going to fear the Lord that we ask, well, what are the implications of this text for me? because we want to respond with humility and reverence and obedience. But at the level of interpretation, the, the, really the question doesn't matter what does it mean to me. What, what has it always meant? What did it mean before I was born? What would it mean if I didn't exist? Because God meant something. So meaning is singular and determined by the author's intention. And we're going to move on now. We're gonna, the rest of our time is going to be devoted to our third presupposition, and the Bible is always consistent in its presupposition about interpretation. So language, meaning, and now interpretation. What's the third presupposition here about interpretation? Here it is. Proper interpretation can be discovered and 
accurately conveyed to anyone who understands the grammar and historical context of the words. Proper interpretation can be discovered and accurately conveyed to anyone who understands the grammar and the historical context of the words. One time I was uh, riding with my friend, who's a, he is a TES grad, he ministers in Wilmington, uh, Delaware, his name's Paul, and uh, Paul and I were, he was taking me to the airport to drop me off um, in Philadelphia, and so before I left, uh, you, know, we, you know, Wilmington's right there on the border, you can just cross over the border, we're in Philly, before we go to the airport, uh, he, he, we, had, we had some time, he's like, you need anything before we go? I'm like, you know, we should, we should get a Philly cheesesteak, I mean, we're in Philly after all, and so for about 20 minutes, from when we crossed the border till we got to the, uh, the downtown area where the best cheesesteaks are, he's given me a tutorial on how to order. Never did I realize how complicated it is to order a Philly cheesesteak in downtown Philly. So you basically have a couple of options. And he explained, he said, do not ask them questions. Don't get clarifying questions. Don't ask about options. Don't try to change up what's on the menu. You will get kicked out uh, quicker than uh, Philly second. I don't, know what, I don't know, maybe not. Maybe there's no such thing as a Philly second. But you'll get kicked out super fast. So all you do is you go in there and you say, steak or chicken. Those are your two options. You either say the word steak or you say the word chicken. Don't say anything else. It's just steak or chicken. That's the first word out of your mouth. The second word out of your mouth, you got a couple options. Now, let's just say you want steak, peppers and onions, and cheese. Well, if you want that, then you say three words. Steak with whiz. Whiz is the word for cheese whiz, and that's what they put on their steak, on their Philly cheese steak. So you say steak with whiz. I'm like, okay, so steak with whiz. That means I've got steak with cheese, but how do, how do they know that I have the onions and the peppers? Well, because you said the word with. You mean steak with cheese means steak with cheese and onions and peppers? Yeah. So how would you order steak with cheese without onions and peppers? He says, then you say two words, just two words. Steak whiz. Okay, so wait a minute. If, if I want steak without the cheese, but I want the onions and the peppers, how do I order that? He's like, you say steak with. Oh, it's dawning on me now. This is the first time in my, experience, in my, in my human existence that I've ever used the word with as a noun. <laughs> with is a noun, not a preposition when you're ordering a Philly cheesesteak. Steak with whiz. With is not a preposition governing whiz. It's a substantive standing in for onions and peppers. And whiz means cheese. So steak with whiz. And I'm like, wow. I'm like, all right, well, I, I got a few. I, I'm going to ask them if they have a, uh, a ham and a bacon option. And, I wanna, and he's like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. We're going to get kicked out. He's so nervous. But I'm like, I'm like learning the, uh, the language. And when you walk in there and you say steak with whiz, they know exactly what you're talking about. It takes all of one second to order, and then you pay, and then you're on your way. And I was impressed. There's a context, and there's a grammar. It's, it's already determined, and it's not according to traditional custom outside of Philly, but it is totally tra traditional inside that context. Grammar, history, the historical setting, and the context, they matter. They matter. Because if you're ordering a sandwich in Philly, with is not a preposition, it's a noun. And it matters. 
It matters. The same is true in Scripture. Let me give you, you know, and by the way, you know, these examples could be multiplied um, hundreds and hundreds of times over, and that's no exaggeration. But I've just selected a few examples that are kind of quick and fast and make the point, because we don't have time to be exhaustive here, nor do we want to be. Um, but it is refreshing just to see a few examples of what I'm talking about. This first slide here is a very obvious example of how a text of Scripture um, has a meaning that it requires uh, grammatical and historical context to make sense of, and that there is an equivalency. Um, there is what I would call grammatical identity between these two passages. So if you go to the next slide, uh, it should be Joshua 6 and 1 Kings 16. There we go. Okay, I realize, I apologize this is so small, because I had to put it on one slide. But, so you might not be able to actually read the passages, uh, in, which is unfortunate, but it wouldn't help, actually, to put it on two different slides, because I wanted you to be able to see the passages together. So if you can't read this, I apologize. The two texts are Joshua 6.26 and 1 Kings 16.34. And I'll read them to you. Listen to this. Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall, slay, he shall lay its foundations. And with the loss of his youngest, he shall set up its gates. Now, when you fast forward to the time of um, uh, where they inhabit the promised land, there's a statement about the consequence of somebody who did just that. Listen to 1 Kings 16, verse 34. In his days, Heel, the Bethelite, built Jericho. Whoops. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Notice, this is what I would call grammatical identity. It uses the exact same verbs all the way through. The only thing that's different is the insertion of the names of the sons and the name of the father at the very beginning. This is called grammatical identity. So when you read these two passages, it's obvious. This is what he said would happen, and this is exactly what happened. I mean, it's just a grammatical identity. That's just so obvious to almost sound unimportant. However, what's interesting is, often in Scripture you'll see something change, you'll see something change grammatically, even the words will change, and the Bible presupposes that the reader can actually make sense of whether this was a faithful fulfillment or whether it wasn't, even though there's not this grammatical identity. And this is where it gets really, really interesting. Let me give you an example. Genesis 22. Open up your Bibles to Genesis 22. Okay, we're in this, the famous story of Abraham with his son Isaac. Up on Mount Moriah, God asked Abraham to kill his son. Okay? You remember the story, right? God says, kill your son, and was Abraham willing to kill his son? Did he start the action to kill his son? Let's pick it up in Genesis 22, verse 1. Abraham uh, God says to Abraham, Abraham, he says, here I am. Verse 2, God says, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there 
as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. Verses 3 and following then go on to tell the story. He goes to Mount Moriah, he goes up to the top, he has the wood, and um, there's no lamb, it's just him and Isaac. In verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb, he answers to his son. Verse 9, well, it gets interesting here now in verse 9 and 10. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. You say, what's significant about that? God said, do this action, and he went to do the action. But wait a minute. What verb did God use in verse 2? What was he supposed to do? He was supposed to offer his son as a burnt offering. In verse 10, he took the action to slay his son. He uses a different verb. So if we say, offer up your son, or if I even said, maybe to make it more exaggerated, even if I said, kill, we know the meaning of the word kill is this big, let's say. The word slay is, has a smaller, narrower meaning. There's, 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 there's violence involved and bloodshed. But we all know, who know English, that the word kill is bigger than the word slay, but slay is clearly inside the meaning of kill. Here, the, as Moses writes the Torah, he uses two different Hebrew words. They're very appropriately translated, to, to kill or to offer, and then the second one, to slay. And the reader who knows Hebrew, or the reader who knows English, reads these two distinct words and says, those aren't the same, but they have the same meaning. Even though the connotation of slay is different than the connotation of kill or offer, the meaning is the same. And so it's just intuitive to grammar, it's intuitive to our use of language that when we pay attention to the grammar, we can tell whether this was a faithful action or an unfaithful action. And we are not surprised that by the time you get to the end of the story, even though Abraham raised his knife to slay his son. God praises him and said, you were willing to do what I said. That was a faithful action in line with the meaning that God intended. Let me give you one more example where the words are different, but it was not a faithful action to what was commanded. This example is Saul in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 15. Turn to 1 Samuel 15 for a second. First Samuel 15, Saul is um, he's being instructed by Samuel, if you remember, about how to take care of the Amalekites and what he needs to do, his responsibility before the, before the Lord with regard to the Amalekites who are living in the Promised Land. Um, <clears throat> verse 2, Samuel relays the words of the Lord, and he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. 
Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Then it goes on to describe the ambush. It describes the defeat in verse 6 and verse 7. In verse 8, he captures Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. He utterly destroys. Notice there's grammatical equivalence. He utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen, the fatlings, the lamb, and all that was good and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Notice, the reader comes along and you read, oh, they they utterly destroyed uh, the nation and the military, the population, but they didn't obey everything God told them to obey, did they? And they even, even the narrator uses the same verb for what he commands Saul to do and then what Saul actually did, but then goes on to qualify it by explaining, but not to the extent that God required. And so here it becomes obvious as you read this, you realize, wow, that's totally clear. The meaning of what God intended is contained grammatically in utterly destroy all the population and the animals and Saul deliberately, utterly destroyed what he thought he should utterly destroy and felt pretty smug about it, but did not obey all the commands with regard to the animals and the king. This is an obvious example of disobedience, but what's interesting is I'm just pointing out the obvious that not every passage has grammatical identity between the command and the fulfillment, but when you read the command and the fulfillment is different, you can tell whether it was faithful or not by the grammar. The grammar makes it obvious. And this, we're not going to get into the details of grammar, but just assuming that we understand some grammar here, you can tell the difference in Genesis 22 that what Abraham did was faithful, even though it's a different verb. And what Saul did was unfaithful, even though it's the same verb, but not to the same extent. And so when we read the scriptures, the scriptures just presuppose that we can understand the meaning, we can know the meaning of scripture when we pay attention to the grammar of the text. There's several other examples here. If we go to the next slide, um, this would just be a, a, a three or four examples here really quick about how grammar it, it determines meaning. Let's look at these real quickly. This is going to be kind of a, a, like almost like a sword drill here, because I'm just going to look at a few passages and make one or two comments on each text. First two are in the same chapter. Go to Galatians 3. What's fascinating about this is Paul makes an argument based on the grammar of a word. And this word is used several times in this chapter. The word is seed. Seed. That's an incredibly important word for understanding your Old Testament. And Paul understands that. And he actually makes an argument based on verse 16, um, based on the singularity versus the plurality of the word. Verse 16. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, singular. That is, Christ. So he's making the point here 
that in, when Moses wrote the Torah, he keeps saying this phrase, and to your seed. And Paul's quoting the Septuagint, kaitos pramati su, and to your seed. And it's a singular form of the word seed. That's, an, that's Christ, he says. Not corporate, not the nation as a whole, not the faithful generation that will come when Christ is reigning. Those are also in the Old Testament. That's also talked about in the Old Testament, the faithful corporate function of a corporate seed, a generation, a nation that is consecrated to the Lord, whose hearts are circumcised nationally, where blessing is, is being given out to the entire nation, and they are dwelling in the land, and they have rest, and they have peace from their enemies, and there's no more war, no more police department, no more uh, plague, and there is nothing. That requires the fulfillment of the singular seed promise for the corporate seed to be fulfilled. And he says, to understand this, you've got to pay attention to the fact that that word seed is not plural, it's singular. And to your seed. It's, I, love, I, love, I love the precision of Scripture. And uh, this is not, Paul's not doing something sneaky here. He's not reading New Testament theology into the Old Testament. You know that, this is just a free fact. I know you paid to get in here, so this one's for free. I'll throw that out there. You know, it's interesting, when the Greek scholars who translated the Old Testament got to Genesis 3.15, the promise that uh, from Eve there would become a seed who would establish animosity between currently unbelieving man and rebellious uh, Satan and his um, angels, there's going to be a human descendant from Eve who would establish that animosity and reverse the curse that was being given in Genesis 3. And Greek scholars of the Old Testament, 250 years before Christ was born, they translated that, even though it's a neuter noun seed, they translated it with a masculine pronoun he because they knew that it was an individual. Paul's not reading New Testament theology into the Old Testament. He's reading his Old Testament. He's reading his Old Testament. And he says, meaning is conveyed accurately and precisely when you pay attention to the grammar. And singulars versus plurals, they matter. Skip down to verse 29. And if you belong to Christ he says to the Galatians, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. Same word. Seed. You, plural, are Abraham's seed. And when you study the use of the word seed in the Old Testament, there are times where seed will be followed up with singular pronouns. Genesis 22, 17, and 18 is an incredible promise about the seed where it says that the seed, he singular, will possess his gates, his gates singular, clearly referring to uh, the seed promise of Genesis 3:15, an individual. But then there's other examples where the seed singular is referring to an entire nation, like Isaiah 44 to 48, several instances where the word seed is referring to a future generation, and it's a corporate singular. This is a 
text, in the same chapter, Paul can allude to the individual use of the singular word seed and the corporate use of the individual word seed and say, this is Christ, and by virtue of Christ, you are the corporate seed if you're in Christ. And so the use of a singular versus a plural matters, and its antecedent reference in the Old Testament matters. But language is clearly communicated when you pay attention to the grammar. Let me give you one more example. Look on the next slide and turn in your Bibles to Matthew. Matthew chapter 22. Um, and this one's great because here is an example where Jesus is in a, in a polemical context, uh, kind of like we looked at several weeks ago in Matthew 19, where he, he uh, presupposed that the reading of Scripture is clear enough and powerful enough to overcome your presuppositions. Well, here... Jesus is making an argument based on the Torah to the Sadducees. And so if you start in Matthew 22, verse 32, if you remember, the Sadducees, you know, they deny the resurrection, but they also only believe in the Torah. They believe that the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are the entire canon. And so, you know, Jesus... It doesn't bother to even go to Daniel 12 or any of the classic, or Psalm 16 or Psalm 17 or Job 19. He doesn't go to any of the classic Old Testament passages on the resurrection. He goes to the Torah. Where, where's the resurrection in the Torah? Oh, glad you asked, Jesus says. Let me show it to you. In verse 31, he says, But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read was spoken to you by God. Again, the presupposition here, Jesus' presupposition is reading the Old Testament is clear enough to give you the answers you need. What haven't you read? And now he quotes from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Think about that for a second. God says in Exodus, after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead, I am their God. Not, I was their God. You want to really like blow your minds about the power of, of grammar when God speaks? In the Hebrew Old Testament, there's actually no verb there. You have to supply it from the previous verse and from the context. And he just says the land, the ground on which you are standing is holy ground. And then when you leave out a verb like that, you imply it. And he's implying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they can't argue with it because they know grammar. He's making an argument from an implied verb that is, it must be present tense and it's not past tense. And they know he's saying the truth. God is saying he is currently their God after they've already died. There has to be a resurrection. Now, we could spend all day thinking about the sweetness of that truth in that text. I'm simply using it as a text to kind of point out Jesus, Paul, all the writers of Scripture 
they know that the grammar is critical for determining meaning. Here's a principle here. Let's look at the next slide. Let's kind of bring this together here. The scripture requires the presupposition that the grammatical sense of the text is the meaning of the scripture. You cannot make sense of scripture if that's not true. You can't make sense of anything if that's not true. The scriptures, they just require that presupposition. You have to bring that presupposition to the Bible. You have to bring that presupposition to all communication, honestly. The meaning, the grammatical sense of the text is the meaning. That's just that critical. So, so far we've talked about the, the grammatical sense. I'm going to talk about the other side of the coin, the historical sense. You've probably heard people say grammatical, historical interpretation. Well, grammatical is paying attention to grammar, um, the meaning of words, lexicography, the, the way words work together, syntax. That's all part of grammar. Well, history, the historical context is also critical. Um, you know, historical context, in my example, um, stake with whiz. <laughs> stake with whiz, I mean, grammatically, in this context, that would mean a, a cheesesteak sandwich with cheese. But in Philadelphia, at the time when I visited, it meant steak, peppers and onions, cheese. The historical context is critical. And the Bible absolutely presupposes that that's a fact. Well, look at the next slide here. Historical interpretation. Scripture ascribes the word of God to um, historical authors who wrote in a historical context to a specific historical audience. Okay, that's critical. We've got to remember that. Um, anytime, like I said before, anytime someone says, well, John, if, Bible's, if the Bible's that clear, then tell me what it means to be baptized for the dead in 1 Corinthians 15, 29. And I say, I don't know. Oh, it's not clear, is it? No, it's absolutely clear. But I'm not a Corinthian, I've never lived in the first century, and I haven't found any historical reference to that particular act. I know they knew what it was. I don't know. So subjectively, I don't experience clarity in 1 Corinthians 15, 29, but objectively, it is intrinsically, inherently clear because God wrote it. And I know it made perfect sense to the Corinthians when they got that letter from Paul. But let me look at some examples here. Well, just one, actually. That's all we have time for. I'm looking at one example. One example in the Bible where the historical context makes all the difference about the meaning. It's two texts in two truths referred to two distinct generations, and I want you to pay attention to the distinction in the wording here. The text, first text is Genesis 15. This is a text where God's speaking to Abraham about what's going to happen to the Amalekites and their um, sin and their future demise. And he's going to talk about how long it's going to take for the nation of Israel to get back to the promised land and uh, wipe out the Amalekites. And so this comes in Genesis 15, and let's look specifically at verse 13 and 16. Genesis 15, verse 13 and 16. Verse 13, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. 
This is a prediction about what's going to happen. And what's important to notice about that verse is the, the reference 400 years. Now, fast forward to verse 16. Then, in the fourth generation, you will return here, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Okay, all I, wanna, all I want you to notice is that in the first verse, he says 400 years. In the next verse, he says, in the, in, well, four verses later, he says, four generations. How long is a generation? Well, if you're like me, your reflex is probably to kind of assume something in the, in the span of about 40 years. In the majority of the biblical context, 40 years is a good estimate of the word generation because that's oftentimes the way that word is used after the, after the um, 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 40 years of wondering, right? Because God says, I'm going to wipe out this generation, and it took 40 years, and 40 years later, they enter the promised land. So from um, the end of the Torah on, for a generation means roughly 40 years. And you read this passage, and you think, 400 years. Okay, 40 times 4, 160 years later. 400 years? What's the lifespan? Everybody was living 100 years then. Everyone was. And so, the meaning of the word has a historical context. Now, fast forward to Exodus. Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, verse 40. Now, the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. Oh, er historical error. Whoops. What happened, Moses? You did your math wrong. Nope. God told Abram they were going to be under slavery for 400 years. They were there 30 years before a pharaoh rose up that did not know Joseph and then subjected them to slavery the last 400 years. So you can go back and read that in Exodus chapter 1. But there's no historical error here. They were in Egypt 430 years. They were in slavery 400 years. Absolute consistency. But what's interesting is that all this time later, Moses just says, yeah, it was 400 years later. Because the word generation means lifespan. And lifespan is contextually determined. And a lifespan in Genesis 15 is not what it was in Exodus 12. We read the scriptures, and we do not get the meaning of the scripture if we are ignorant of the grammar or the historical context. The historical context and the grammar make all the difference about meaning. If you want the real... Uh, incredible, uh, scientifically academic ex explanation of this phenomenon, of this word. I've got a quote here from William F. Albright. I found this pretty fascinating. He just says, the early Hebrews dated long periods of lifetimes, not by generations, which replaced the count um, by lifetimes about the 10th century B.C. at the latest. Uh, the Hebrew word door, which is what we read right here. That's the Hebrew word door, both in, in um, well, it's, it's in Exodus one, a generation rose up that did not know Joseph. It uses the word generation. It just means that generation, that little cross-section of the nation. 
But in Genesis, he used the word door for four generations or four lifespans. So Hebrew word door just simply means lifetime in Genesis 15, 16. The 400 years of 1513 is simply the translation of the archaic terminology into classical Hebrew. Isn't that fascinating? Wow, no problem here. You just got to pay attention to the grammar and the historical context. Abraham's father died at the age of 205 when Abraham was 130 years old. Abraham was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. And he was exactly 100 when Isaac was born. The meaning of life cycle in Genesis 15 means 100 years. So you can say four generations, 400 years. And then come along later when generation would have meant 40 and say 400 years, like Moses said. And so we can see that there's a lot of texts in Scripture where maybe a promise and a fulfillment are not grammatically identical, but the meaning is the same. You can see examples where the command and the action that followed are not grammatically identical, but you can tell just by the grammar and the historical context whether that action was faithful and it's blessed as obedience, or it was unfaithful and did not correlate to those words, and so they were cursed and there were consequences. And the scriptures just presuppose this over and over and over again. Let me give you a concluding, concluding principle here. Should be on the second to last slide here. Uh, conclusion here. Biblical interpreters, Bible interpreters, must diligently seek the meaning of the human language as intended by the author, which is contained in the grammatical historical sense. Any other hermeneutic lacks divine authority for its interpretive method and conclusions. Any other way. If we read the Bible any other way, then by paying attention to the actual grammar and the historical context of the human language that God spoke to us in, then we have no warrant to say, thus says the Lord. No, we have no, no warrant to say, this is the meaning of the text. The only way we can say this is the meaning of the text is when we interpret it with the presuppositions that God has about language, meaning, and interpretation. You know, as I was thinking about this over the years, and as I've read lots of folks who would have problems with what we're observing here from Scripture, I've read a lot of critiques and a lot of attacks, a lot of satanic, did God really say type of books that are articulated by current scholars. Some of them openly postmodern, some of them openly liberal, some of them openly unbelievers, many of them professing Christians, and some of them professing Protestants. What I marvel at, and on the last slide, I just wanted to write this down for you guys, and what I marvel at is this. This is what you could say the argument, for like, emphasis on the. Like, this is really just such a profound um, uh, observation. When you look at what Scripture presupposes about these things, language and meaning and interpretation, and you step back and you hear that satanic accusation, Satan coming at us and saying, hey, Believer, did God really say? Can you really know? Every time I hear that accusation, it's self-refuting because it's attacking God's presuppositions about language, meaning, and interpretation, and it has to borrow those presuppositions to do so.
Not only does God presuppose these principles when he speaks, but so does man. He must steal God's presuppositions even when he questions God's ability to speak. Every time I hear another one of these satanic critiques of my God's ability to speak clearly, I marvel that they do so in human language. They borrow the human language ability that they were given being created in the image of God, and they have to steal that use of human language to try to attack my God's ability to speak. And then they're going to level an accusation against his ability to speak, expecting you to let them determine their meaning and allow them their words only to have one meaning. Lest I could say, I get to interpret your meaning, and it means two things. It means what I say and what you say, and what you say agrees with what I say, and you agree with me. No, 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 I disagree with you, because you say this, and I'm trying to attack God's ability to speak. No, no, you're borrowing his presupposition. And then, to make matters worse, they must steal the presupposition that that language can be conveyed accurately when you pay attention to the grammar and the historical context. Well, you said this, and you start mincing words and twisting it and putting meanings that they never intended that were foreign to the context. You know, you're taking me out of context. No, that's not what the grammar of what I said meant. Sorry, that's God's presupposition. I mean, it's just incredible. Satan, mankind, no one, no creature in existence can critique God's ability to speak clearly without borrowing from his presuppositions about language, meaning, and interpretation in order to try to slap him in the face. And I just step back and I just look at the brilliance of Scripture. Infinite wisdom, infinite brilliance, the omniscience and the power of my God to speak. And you look out at the church and the criticisms to be able to you really can't know what God says. It's just these chirpings. These chirpings of men borrowing God's presuppositions, trying to attack him with his presuppositions. And you just, you just want to say, please stop maligning my God's ability to speak. If you were consistent, you'd stop using human language, you'd stop being an author, you'd stop expecting human meaning, you'd stop using grammar and historical context, you'd stop all that. And wouldn't that be a better universe if every critique against God just remained silent? <laughs> I want to close with Psalm 29. I'm just going to read it. We've just got a few minutes here and then we'll be done. Psalm 29. This is a sweet psalm about God's voice. By contrast with my uh, gravelly, scratchy voice from a football game and two volleyball matches of cheering... Uh, here I am with a chirping, squ squirrely little voice. Let's read about God's voice. Gen uh, Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. Clear allusion to Genesis 1, 1 through 3. The God of glory thunders. 
The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. Quick comment. After an entire stanza of God's voice doing things, there's only one voice in response, and that's every voice in God's presence crying out glory. God speaks glory. Verse 10. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. An entire psalm devoted to praising God's voice. How appropriate. God knows how to speak. And as I mentioned, these presuppositions are consistently employed in scripture, and that probably raises some question in your mind. There's probably some instances where you might be thinking, well, I've read some passages in the New Testament that sound like they interpret the Old Testament and come up with a meaning that I didn't see in the Old Testament. Does the Bible consistently interpret God's language that way? The answer is yes. And that's what we're going to look at for the next four weeks, Lord willing. And this is going to get really fun because we get to look at some of the problem passages and watch them just dissolve and watch God consistently speak with clarity. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. We're just so grateful that we can look at your speech and learn about speech and learn about our speech. We can look at your words and we can have confidence. We can see that you've given us uh, you've modeled for us and you've presupposed a, an interpretation that really we can take to our quiet times and we can take to our Bible studies and we can take every time we hear a sermon and every time we read your word, every time our hearts are broken and every time we are fearful and whenever we are scared and whenever we see the, the raging of sin in our inner man, when we go to your word, we can know what you've said. We can benefit from your powerful voice. And in response, we can do nothing but say glory. Thank you for speaking. Thank you for speaking so clearly. Thank you for giving us your word. And I pray that as we've prayed each week, that the, this study would just continue to deepen our conviction and our, and our confidence that we can know you. We can know your heart. We can know your mind. We can know ourselves. It's only because we can know your word. Thank you. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.